Father, thank you so much for this church. Father, I ask that we would never take this, what we have right here, for granted, but that we would see that it is special to be with believers praising you and getting into your word. And Father, I I ask that you would unleash your word upon us tonight. Lord, I ask for those that need comfort, that you would use this passage to comfort For those that may need correction, Lord, I ask that you will use this passage and this microphone to correct. And Lord, for those of us that you need to kick into action, I ask that we would receive, that we would have ears to hear what you would have to say to us as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I think I was was like one person that participated that amen. Hey, this was the 4th of July just this last week. And everyone have a good 4th of July? Yeah? Okay. So we were like all supposed to be quarantined. Anybody shooting off fireworks inside their house? Okay, bad idea, right? Anybody shooting off illegal fireworks outside of their house? Okay, yeah, me neither. I would just use sparklers too. Um, July 4th, 1776. It's one year into the Revolutionary War and five years prior to the Battle of Yorktown, where the British eventually surrender to the American forces. The Declaration of Independence is signed, a document claiming our freedom from British government and rule. We live in a nation that was founded on revolting from England, God save the Queen, and replacing that government with a government of our own. It was a revolution, a revolution. A war that lasted, I think, if I'm correct, seven, seven and a half years. Well, today, maybe like never before in my life, today throughout the streets of our nation and the pages of our social media is the cry for, or at least the expectation of, another revolution. Maybe you've seen this. Maybe you've seen people posting about uh, a potential civil war, a revolution coming. Maybe you've been a part of that. I think that God put something in each of us to desire to be a part of a history-marking moment and to create real change. We all want to change the world. It's no coincidence that the 12 disciples, the 12 men that followed Jesus for three and a half years and observed him every day, that they were credited to, after his death and resurrection, that they were credited for turning the world upside down. But maybe, maybe the way to revolution is different than what we are seeing on social media. I don't know about you, but it's been easy as I scan through Facebook or Instagram or you watch the news. It's easy to engage in these political uh, fights with each other. It's really easy to uh, begin arguing every political stance that there is right now. I don't know if that's just me that struggles with it. Maybe that's you as well. But... I'm just curious, what if the solution for reform has less to do with the state and more to do with the spirit? Maybe true reform has less to do with politics and more with prayer. Just a crazy thought. I mean, we are Christians. You know, we are so prone to looking at the outward And I think that when we do that, the potential for us to neglect the inward is great. When you look at the outward, we we say, uh, if we could only change the prison system, or maybe we could deconstruct our economic position, if we could tighten our borders, or if we could loosen our borders, if there was a new tax code, if everything was more equitable, if we stopped seeing color, maybe if we started seeing color and celebrating color, If only that politician was in office, or if only that politician was out of office. There are a ton of external issues, and we do not need to neglect them 
But we must first, as believers, address the internal issues. I was on a walk uh, about a week ago, and I I was talking with a, a close friend of mine, and we were talking about this because people are literally having these conversations right now about revolution, about civil war, and what's going to be happening in our nation. And we were just talking about, and the, the word revolution came up like six or seven times. And it, it, it was as if in a moment, the Holy Spirit just whispered to my heart, the word isn't revolution. The word is revival. Revival. And if you right now feel more consumed by the idea of revolution than of revival. I've been there. I'm still there, kind of. I know how you feel, but we can't stay there. Because before we are Americans, or before we belong to any political party, we are Christians. We belong to Jesus. Billy Graham said this. He says, Jesus was one of the greatest social reformers. But he accomplished it by transforming the individual. He was not a revolutionist. He was the redeemer. But by redeeming the individual personality, he brought about many social reforms. I've titled the message tonight, Revolution and Revival. And we're going to be looking at a a familiar passage, uh, one of the more popular psalms. It's Psalm 51. And I just want to, as you're turning there, I just want to give you a warning. I'm not going to promise you three foolproof steps to leading America to revival. I'm not going to promise you, you do these things and we will see our nation turn around and change and we'll have another great awakening. But as we look at this text, we're going to examine the progression of repentance and revival in David's life when he was in a crisis of sin. So now that we're all at Psalm 51, let's look. And starting prior to verse 1, right at the top, yours probably says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So just as a way of reminder, maybe some of you are new uh, and you're not as familiar with the Bible, but maybe some of you are familiar with this passage and this story of David and Bathsheba. But as just a way of reminder, this comes to us out of 2 Samuel. Uh, You can find it in chapters 11 and 12. And we'll just kind of do a quick review of the scenario. So David is the king of Israel. And it's the springtime when all the kings are out to make war with each other. And David is uh, relaxing in his palace. He's hanging out in his palace. He decides not to go to war. And one day he sees a woman bathing on her rooftop. And so he inquires his servants and he's like, hey, who's this? And they say, well, actually, no, that's another man's wife. That's Uriah the Hittite's wife. Her name is Bathsheba. And he says, okay, go get her for me. And so he sends his messengers and they, they go and retrieve her and she comes to the king, to be with King David and they spend the night together. They commit adultery. They go home, had a great time of sin together and they think they're never going to have to think about this again. David probably thinks he's free and clear. But she finds out that she's pregnant, sends a note through his servants back to King David and says, hey, so I'm pregnant it's a baby, there's a baby coming, and my husband's out at battle, so it's not his. And so David thinks, okay, what in the world am I going to do? I have to cover up my sin. I've got to figure this whole situation out for myself, and I've got to make it so that this isn't found out. So he says, okay, well, I've got an idea. I'll bring Uriah the Hittite, who's out in battle right now, fighting where I should be, I'm going to bring him back home, and I'm just going to tell him, hey, I want to hear about the battle. Tell me what's going on. You can report back to me, and then, oh, by the way, why don't you go home tonight and spend some time with your wife? He thinks, oh, this will cover it up, because then he'll be with his wife, and then nine months later, eight months later, oh, maybe it's just a little bit early, and nobody has to know. Well, Uriah is just like this righteous dude, and he's like, 
King David, I can't do that. He ends up sleeping on the porch of the palace. He doesn't even go home. And, and David sees him in the morning. He's like, what's going on, Uriah? You should be home with your wife. He says, I can't do that when, when my brothers are fighting and dying for the nation. I can't just go and, and, and eat and be merry and be with my wife. I, I can't do that. I, I, I'm going to stay out here. And so David thinks, oh man, like I can't cover up my sin all that well. I can't take this situation in my hands all that well after all. So what does he do? He ends up saying, hey, Uriah, just hang out here in Jerusalem for just a little bit longer. We're going to figure this out. And uh, he writes a letter. And this is the craziest part. This is just like, maybe it's not the craziest part. It's all really crazy and immoral and wild and evil. And David is, what is he thinking? But uh, he writes this letter and he writes it to the general whose name is Joab. And uh, he's the commanding officer for Uriah. And he says, hey, Uriah, I want you to take this letter to Joab. So Joab gets it. He finally, literally, Uriah is carrying his own death sentence in his hands, but he hands it over to his general like he was supposed to, like he was told to do. And the letter tells Joab, he says, what I want you to do is put Uriah at the front lines in your next craziest battle. And what's going to happen is, is, is right when you guys are getting attacked, I want all of the troops except for Uriah to draw back. And so David comes up with his plan to cover up his sin, to take the situation into his own hands so that Uriah dies, which is exactly what happens. Uriah dies. David allows Bathsheba to mourn for her, a season over her deceased husband. And then he marries her. And then that baby is born, and it's a boy. And so David and Bathsheba, they have this son. They're married. They're living in the palace. He's committed multiple sins, multiple crimes, things that he has known since he was a child not to do, adultery and murder being above the chief of them. But he thinks, that was a close one. But here's the thing, here's the thing that I love is that God cares too much about David to let him stay in his sin. And you know what? God cares so much about us that he doesn't want us to stay in our sin. The Bible tells us that our sin will find us out. And, and when we read that verse, we kind of think, ooh, scary. Oh no, that's not a good thing that our sin's going to find us out. But really, did you know that God allowing you to be caught in your sin is one of the most gracious and loving things he could do for you because it's, it's like he's, he's casting out a line to say, no, you don't have to be here anywhere anymore. You don't have to be in this thing that is tormenting your soul and going to cause you so much pain anymore. I have freedom and forgiveness for you. And I think that that's sometimes good for us to know because when we get caught doing something, we often, or we rarely rather, feel like that's a blessing. But next time that you get found out, I want you to realize that that is actually the grace of God drawing you back to what is best for you. So how does David get caught out or found out? God sends a prophet named Nathan and Nathan goes to David. He's got an ear with the king. Bathsheba and, and uh, her son, David's son also, are, are living in the palace at this point. And, and the baby's been born. We don't know exactly how long, but we do know that the, the child is still an infant. And, uh, and so Nathan the prophet comes to David. He says, hey, David, can we hang out? Like, I, we just need to get, grab coffee. I've got, I've got something that I want to talk to you about. And thank God for the Nathans in the world that don't shy away from confronting people when they need to be confronted, right? Um, so anyways, Nathan goes to David and he says, hey, I've got this story. I've got this situation that I'm facing. I don't know exactly what to do. But uh, there, was, there, there were these two guys. Both of them had lamb lambs. One actually only had one, and he was poor, and he only had one poor ewe lamb. And he loved that thing. Really, the, the Bible's kind of crazy. It says that he, he treated it as his own daughter. So it's like, I don't know how you do that. What in the world does that mean? Like, you love that lamb so much, but he says he lets it cuddle up with him. He, he spends time with it. He lets it eat from its plate. He lets him drink from its... It's kind of like the people that, like, their dogs dress up for Halloween. Um, sometimes it's like, well, that dog has more outfits than the kids have. 
And why is he going grocery shopping with you? That's not sanitary. Uh, sorry, if anybody is in here um, that does that, I totally, my wife wanted to do that with our dog, and that was my one stipulation. I said, we can get this tiny dog if he doesn't wear costumes. And uh, anyways, that's how this poor man was with his lamb. He loved his pet lamb, right? And then there's this rich guy. This rich guy's got a whole flock of lambs. And he has some friends come in town, and he, he's like, oh, man, I need to feed them some barbecue. We've got to have some ribs or something, lamb shanks. And so uh, he doesn't want to, to use any of his flock for the feast. And so he takes that one single lamb from the poor man, and he slaughters it, and he takes it, and he kills it, and they grill it, and they eat it. And David, being like a shepherd, Nathan knew how to speak to David, right, and get his attention. David is livid. He is like, that is the most evil thing you could do. How in the world could this guy be so insensitive to, to take something that wasn't his? And he says, this guy's going to have to pay four times what the law would usually require for this. And he is so upset, and he starts leveling all of these charges. And Nathan says, that man is you, David, because you're the one that took something that wasn't yours. Can I just make just a tiny little quick point here? Is that our sin often looks worse on other people? And that we're a lot more willing to put up with the things that we do wrong, but when somebody else does it wrong, we're so much quicker to judge them for it when we are just as uh, necessary to be judged. So Nathan says to David, you are the man. You are the one that sinned. You're the one that's done this great evil against God. And you know what I've found in my life, the longer that I walk with the Lord, the longer that I've been on this planet, is that could so often be said of me. You are the man. You are the one that's in sin. You're judging all of those people because of the things that, 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 that you've done yourself. They're doing it, sure, but you've done it yourself. And the Lord is so gracious to say, no, you're the man. You're the one with the sin as well. I mess up a lot. I lie sometimes. Sometimes I let others take the blame for me when they don't deserve it. I have to ask God to change the channel in my mind often. Sometimes I get really mean on the road. Sometimes I get really mean off of the road. <laughs> Maybe you're that way too. Maybe it's not just me and David that are the one who has sinned, the one who has done a great wrong and a great evil against the Lord. Maybe you're facing sin. Maybe you're living in life-dominating sin. Maybe it's not a life-dominating sin. Maybe it's something like, like pride. Maybe it's something like hatred. Maybe it's something like unforgiveness. Maybe you've cheated. Maybe you've stolen. Maybe you've murdered. I don't know. Sometimes we even sin, we even fall short, we even sin against God when we're trying to do the right thing, but we're doing it for the wrong purposes. Can I tell you kind of like an embarrassing story of my life? When I was 15 years old, I've been coming to this church uh, for all but three years of, of my life, and I'm really glad that I can, can say that I've, you know, it's such a blessing to have grown up here. So um, I was born in like the fourth row right there. <laughs> but different chairs, so don't worry. Um, so when I was 15 years old, I started serving in SOPO. And uh, I was just, I wasn't doing, I wasn't working there. I was just serving there. Some of my friends worked there and I was just like, oh, I'll hang out with them. I'll serve. I'll do the, I'll be a bus boy and clean the dishes and wipe the tables. Well, there was this one time, and I think I share this story in Lifetrack. Do I share this story in Lifetrack? Ashley's like, yeah, I hear this story every month. So uh, 15 years old, Matt Perolo, like, wiping down the tables. It's kind of getting late, and I was just getting really lazy and lethargic, and I was just like, I don't know. Probably not every inch of the table has to be wiped, right? And uh, I guess I'll just skip that table. We'll be fine. And, 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 and uh, the second that I saw Pastor Skip walking from across the, the campus, he was like over by the baptismal, but I could tell that he was coming to Sopo. You can bet that I turned into the most vigorous busboy, the most righteous. I was cleaning those tables for the glory of God in those seconds. 
And I pretended like I didn't see him. So he walks in. This is funny, Pastor Skip, if you're watching. Hey, oh, sinner. Um, so he walks into Sopo, and I pretend that I don't even see him. I'm like doing the dishes over here. Oh, hey, Pastor Skip. Didn't know you were here today. <laughs> and so like... Even, even when we are doing something that is good, if we're doing it for the wrong reasons, not out of fear of man, but I, was, I guess I was kind of doing it in a weird reverse kind of way of fear of man. Like I was doing it because of pride, because I wanted him to be like, oh, Matt's the best. Um, <laughs> our motives can be sinful. And this is a message that we all know. If you've been in church more than three weeks, if you've read the Bible for more than two hours in your life, you know that sin is a major theme of the Bible because it is one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue of our existence. And no one is without sin. Romans tells us, Romans chapter 3, no one is good, no, not one. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. So not only does the Bible tell us um, that we're sinners, not only does our uh, personal experience tell us we're sinners, but our friends and family members could tell us that we're sinners pretty well as well, right? Do you remember having like a best friend when you were young and you were just at the age where it was like summertime, you're middle school, you had a best friend, you would hang out with them for like four days in a row, but by like one and a half days in, you started hating each other? It's because the more that you spend time with any person, the more that you realize how sinful they are and how sinful you are. So we have three counts against us. The Bible lets us know, our own experience lets us know, and our friends and family members can let us know that we have a major sin issue. But I want to look with you now at this. We're getting into verse one now. uh, And we're going to look at David's response to his sin. And I want to just mention this too. The goal is not for us all to leave depressed that we're sinners. The goal is that we leave with the hope of a savior. So with that in mind, let's read Psalm 51 verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. And then I want to jump down um, one more more spot. In verse 9 it says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So what we're going to kind of see is the progression of repentance throughout this passage. And so we see first and foremost, David's response to his grievous sin against Uriah, against Bathsheba, but most importantly against God is that he was repentant. And that's our first point is repentance. He cries out and he says, have mercy on me, O God. Now we all know that mercy is not getting what you do deserve. See, in order to understand mercy, we have to understand justice, that you commit a crime, then a punishment or uh, a penalty is paid, and that's justice. But mercy 
is saying, okay, well, justice needs to be met, or, or you should have a punishment, but instead of that punishment, you're not going to have it. That's mercy. You're not getting the justice that you do deserve. There were two major crimes that he committed. One is adultery, and the second was murder. Leviticus 20, and David would have known this, Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Leviticus 20. Numbers 35, 31 through 32 says, do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. He must surely be put to death. See, David's sin left him in a desperate situation that meant that he had to pay for those sins. And the penalty under Jewish law for each of those was death. Two life sentences, or two death sentences, rather, that he deserved to pay. But it's also worth noting, because he's asking for mercy, he is asking for mercy based off of his knowledge of God's character, which I think is important for us to notice. Check this out. He says, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. See, we can come all the more boldly to God when we know the God that we are coming to. David knew that God was a gracious, a merciful, a loving, kind God, that he was generous. And so knowing his character gave him greater confidence to call out for God to act on that character. Which is why it's so crucial that you and I know the God that we say that we serve and love. Which is so crucial why we study the Bible to understand the God that we serve. Which is why it's so crucial for us to be spending time talking with him in prayer. But another key, major thing, another part of repentance that we see in this passage that we just read, comes to us in verse 3 and 4. He says, Get this, he says, I acknowledge, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And this is an example of a word that we toss out a lot is, is the word confession. He is confessing. Literally means to say the same as. I am going to say the same thing about my thoughts that God says about my thoughts. I am going to say the same thing about my evil deeds that God says about my evil deeds, that they are evil, that they are sin. And we as Christians, we can't shy away from calling sin, sin. Yeah, sure, you know, in other people, but more importantly in us. Because I think it's really, again, very easy for us to point and say, well, that guy's a sinner because A, B, and C. But I think we have this temptation and this propensity to often shrug off our sin by comparing ourselves to others or just dismissing it as a misstep or a mistake or as an accident or a non-intended consequence of something that we've done. But we, like David, need to get to the point where we acknowledge the things that we are doing and we call them what they are. There is no greater danger, I think, than to shrug off the sins that Jesus had to die for. If they were serious enough for the Son of God to leave heaven and be nailed to a cross because of those sins, then we ought to take them seriously as well. Confession. You call it what it is. You recognize the consequences. And that sets you in a great place to ask for forgiveness. But David's not just after forgiveness here. He wants to be restored and renewed, which forgiveness makes way for. And so our second point, the progression of repentance, is that it leads to renewal. It leads to renewal. Let's check out these verses, verses 7 through 12. Read along with me. 
He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. The first thing that we, we saw, he, he, he mentioned like this weird word. He says, purge me with hyssop. Anyone in here know what hyssop is? Probably. You guys are pretty good students of the Bible, right? Hyssop. So it was, it was a plant that grew in the Middle East. Oftentimes it would grow out of walls, but it was used in many ceremonial cleansings for the, the Jewish people. But most notably, it was used in Passover. It was kind of like a little, like a, a nature-grown paintbrush. And so it comes out of this wall, you pick up the hyssop, and you, you would dip it. Remember Passover. So when the children of Israel were in Egypt, it's the last plague. God says, I'm going to send the, the, the angel of death and the firstborn of every house that doesn't have blood on the doorpost is going to die. But what they would do is, so they, they would kill a lamb, they would put its blood in a bowl, in a basin, and they would dip these little plants, these little hyssop plants in, and then they would spread it on the doorpost. And so most notably, most likely, David had Passover in the death of a lamb in mind when he says, wash me whiter than snow. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. You see, it takes blood to make us clean, right? Only we know, and the, the book of Hebrews tells us, that the blood, of go, uh, the blood of bulls and goats is impossible to, to take away sin. But John the Baptist tells us that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it's really pretty crucial what we're hearing about David is he's not just asking for God to pity him and to shrug his shoulders and to say, okay, no worries, we'll forget about your sin. He's asking God not for pity, but for a pardon, a substitution, the lamb's blood for mine. In Jesus's death on the cross, was infinitely more effective than thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs that were dying year after year after year in the tabernacle and then after David eventually in the temple. Jesus' blood was infinitely more effective for the nation of Israel and for you and for me. So David realizes this, that he needs a substitute. He needs a pardon, not just a pity. And without saying it, he's about to transition from asking for mercy to asking for grace. You heard before, you've probably heard, you know, this definition before that mercy, we just said it, is not getting what you do deserve, then grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? So in the way that this works in our house, because we've got two little sinners that live with my wife and I as well. Um, one's about to be four. He's a really cute sinner. And then uh, I've got a two and a half year old daughter and she's definitely the cutest of, of all the four sinners that live in our house. Um, but the way that it works in our house, because, you know, they're toddlerish age. And so uh, justice is either a spanking or timeout. Mercy is... Okay, you did something, but mercy, neither, neither a spanking nor a timeout. Grace, and this maybe rarely happens in this exact form, but it happened yesterday, is uh, Grace was going to Target and picking out a Matchbox car for I, I, both of them, right? Uh, not, they did not deserve that 99-cent vehicle, by the way. They did not deserve it, but they got something that they did not deserve. And so that is the grace. And, and, and uh, David... He says, create in me a pure heart. Create in me a pure heart, O God. He's not just asking for God to shrug off his sin or just to pardon him. He says, no, I want more than that. I want to be right before you again. I want to be created completely new again. And I really love the word create here because in the Hebrew, it is bara or bara or however you want to say it, but it's B-A-R-A -A in our transliteration of the Hebrew language. So 
it's the same exact word that we find uh, in the first chapter of Genesis. It's the fifth word of the Bible. Um, in the beginning, God created. And in that example, he's creating out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created the universe. He didn't take a few particles and a little bit of sand from over there and some stuff over from Mars and all that. No, like Mars didn't exist. In the beginning, God created out of nothing. And so David uses that same word when he asked God to create in him a new heart. And yes, we like to say God's in the business of restoration, which he is, I get that, but he's also in the business of just recreation, reanimation. That's exactly what we celebrate and we commemorate when we get baptized, right? That our old person has died and that, behold, he makes all things new. We are a new creation in him. Has anyone ever broken their iPhone screen? Of course, if you have an iPhone, you've broken the screen, right? Nelson's never, wow, you're a magical man, Nelson. Um, if you've broken your iPhone screen, you've probably either gone to an iPhone repair shop that isn't an Apple store, or you've gone to the Apple store to get your iPhone fixed, right? Well, it used to be, and I don't know if it still is, I think if you break the glass on the back of your iPhone, they cannot simply replace the glass. They have to give you a brand new iPhone. So this is just a really dumb illustration to say that God doesn't just restore us and give us new glass. He doesn't just paint us and make us look pretty again. He makes us new with all new components, new in him. And that's exactly what David is asking for. And he continues in verse 10. He says, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. What David is realizing here is that what is going to sustain him is the presence of God. What is going to give him a steadfast spirit is being with the Holy Spirit. And this may have scared David at the time, because this is Old Testament, and, and you've heard Nelson, and you've heard Pastor Skip talk about this often, is that there are three Greek prepositions when it comes to the Holy Spirit's relationship with humans, right? Para, which means with, epi, which means upon, or en, which means in. And so in the Old Testament, you would often find, or you would only find, para, with, or epi, which is on, epi usually went along with a manifestation of some sort of gift, maybe of leadership or some sort of miraculous working. When the Holy Spirit came epi upon somebody, he had the power to do the work of the Lord, or rather the, the work of the Lord would happen through him because God was with him through the Holy Spirit, right? So it's only in the New Testament that we come across that third preposition, n when uh, we see that the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so David, you remember his predecessor? What was his predecessor's name? Saul. So Saul, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 16, that Saul, that the Holy Spirit left Saul. And so I think you would imagine, and then he goes on and he gets like really crazy depressed and makes really, really bad decisions. Um, but you might imagine that David, having known that, would think, oh no, God, would you not take your Holy Spirit from me? Not only because I don't want to be alone, but I know that any sustained relationship, any sustained forgiveness and rightness with you means being in your presence with you. See, he didn't just want to be forgiven. He didn't want to just survive. And I think a lot of us get in this mentality. It's like, we just got to survive this year. We just got to survive this life. But David had this mentality. I don't want to just survive. I don't want to just get by. I want to thrive in my relationship with God. And I think that some of us, we buy into like this cheap Christianity where it's like, no, I said the prayer, I read my Bible now and then, I'm good, I don't need to do anything more. And it's like, you may not need to do anything more to get saved, but are you living the full potential life that God has for you? And David says, I want you to create a brand new heart in me. I want to be in a right relationship with you. I don't want to lose the calling that you've placed on my life. I don't want you to take your power from me. I want to be about your business. 
business, and so I want to thrive in a relationship with you, God. And then he says in verse 12, get this, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation, the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain, to sustain me. Now, it's two times that he talks about joy. He says, let me hear gladness and joy again. What you can imagine that, that as a parent who's lost a child, because that's eventually what happened, is Nathan said, the prophet said, um, okay, so God's going to forgive you, but you're going to lose this child. And David fasts for days, and the child ends up dying. And then he begins eating again and getting his strength back uh, uh, again. But he, you, you can imagine that stays with him. He says, God, I want you to restore to me the joy of knowing you. I want you to restore to me the joy of your salvation. I want you to allow me to hear gladness and joy again. Can you remember when you first tasted grace? Can you remember the first moment that you, that you, that you realized None of my sin, none of my shame is on me anymore because Jesus took it on himself. Do you remember that freedom? I don't know if you've seen these videos. They've kind of become quite the sensation. Uh, You can watch videos of people who had been deaf receiving cochlear implants is everyone familiar with that? That's where it would put like, I don't even actually know all the science behind it, but they essentially put this device inside your, inside your head and then also on the outside of your head. And so there are people who have gone their entire lives without being able to hear. And then they go, they undergo this surgery, this procedure, they have the cochlear implant uh, placed on, and then people will record videos of the second that the doctor actually flips the switch. So people who have lived, there's this girl, what is her name? Her name is, you should look it up, her name is Sarah Cherman. I don't know if that's how you say her last name, but that's how I said it, so deal with it. Sarah Cherman. She lived 29 years without hearing a sound. She was a mother, she was a wife, she had grown used to living without sound. 29 years old, she gets this, this procedure done, she's sitting in the chair, her husband's got the video recorder, or video recorder, it wasn't the 80s, uh, iPhone, <laughs> whatever it was, and, uh, and he's recording, and, and, and the second that the doctor flips the switch, her eyes light up, and she's like amazed, and she hears her husband's voice for the very first time, and she just starts like weeping tears of joy. Can you remember the first time you tasted grace? Can you remember the first time that you were forgiven and you realized the gravity of that? Sometimes I think that I begin drifting apathetic. And maybe that's something that that maybe is just something that I deal with, but I have an inkling that maybe you at times drift apathetic to the joy of the salvation that we've been given through Jesus. And we would do well to rejoice like the angels that rejoice every time that one sinner repents. There is a party in heaven. And I think that sometimes we need to force ourselves to get back to the basics that Jesus took your sin. He died your death and gave you life. You have never been good enough, but he didn't care. He paid for you with his own blood anyways. You and I deserve death like David, but God has breathed life in us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And we need to remember, and that's actually why we take communion, is to remember and to commemorate the fact that God loves us so immensely and that our sin is so heinous but that those two things work really well together, the love of God and our evil sin. Because Jesus paid for our sin on that cross. The first time that there's ever a song recorded in the Bible, um, the first time that I think, I think it's the first time that we also read about dancing, is right when the Israelites cross over the Jordan. Nope, nope, not cross over the Jordan. Get your water, bodies of water correct, Matt. 
they cross over the Red Sea, escaping uh, the, their Egyptian pursuers. The chariots, the horses, they follow them in, and the water comes crushing down on their enemy, and the children of Israel, two million of them, make it safely to the other side into what uh, God is giving them as a promised land. And that's the first time that we see rejoicing like this, crazy ecstatic. That's the first time that we see a song written, is uh, a song written about God's salvation of them. And so I think that when we get together for Wednesday nights, when we get together for the weekends, singing is an incredibly crucial thing. And I think that it should be a part of our lives as Christians, not just on Wednesdays and the weekends. It ought to be a part of our lives throughout the week so that we can remember, but so that we can practice that joy. And he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit, an obedient spirit to sustain me. See, this psalm, like all psalms, is a song, and it has a rhythm of repentance and renewal. Repentance and renewal. Repentance and renewal. And it's a rhythm that we as Christians ought to be practicing. Not just repent once and turn from your sins. Okay, now, no, I said the prayer. I walked forward. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I need to never repent from any of my sins again. No, you don't need to get saved again, but we need to be in a continual rhythm of repentance and renewal. And I really do believe that that is what's going to lead to our third point, revival. Revival. Let's look at verses 13 through 19. David writes, Then... Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And then get this. I love this. In verse 18 and 19, he says, Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. First thing we read there in verse 13 is the word then. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And the result is that sinners are going to turn turn back to you. The word then is important because it tells us when. When? Then. After I've repented of my sins, I've been forgiven of my sins, I've been created with a new heart, and I know that the Holy Spirit is with me, then I'm going to start teaching transgressors your ways. I'm going to start showing sinners your love and letting them know about the gospel that saves. But it took 13 verses It took 13 verses of repentance for David to get to this point. And I think that that's important. One conclusion that I believe we can draw from that is that personal renewal must precede public revival. Personal renewal must precede public revival. I think that often, like I kind of started this evening off, we were talking about like, we got to do this policy and we got to put this politician here. And it's like, okay, those are good things. But what's really going to bring a Jesus revolution, a revival, is that when we get serious, not just about other people's sin, but when we get serious about our own sin. And when we say, no, we're not going to accept that. I'm not going to accept that in my life anymore. Jesus not only forgave me of that, but he freed me of it. So I don't have to walk in it anymore. And so we're going to choose holiness and we're going to choose to follow him and not ourselves. I want to point out something just real fun. I'm not like a grammarian. I don't have a degree in literature or in English. I hardly know the English language. Um, But I can count verbs. 
and I did that uh, before coming up here, and I counted all of the verbs that we find in this chapter that are related to God. What God does in this chapter, it says, I mean, David cries out, and he says, have mercy, wash me, cleanse me. You're going to judge. You can judge righteously, teach, cleanse, wash, let me hear, hide your face, 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 blot out transgressions, create, renew, restore, grant me, save me, open my lips. There are like, those are pretty some hardcore verbs right there. Those aren't like, just like, oh, just walk, I don't know, I'm thinking of bad, I, stick to your notes, Matt. <laughs> those are some hardcore, those are some hardcore verbs right there. Renew, create, wash, cleanse, 24 times, 24 things that God brings to this psalm. Do you want to know what David brought to salvation? His sin, his transgression, his evil, his murder, his adultery. That's the only thing that you and I bring to salvation is our sin. But you know what? Post-salvation, post-coming to Jesus, get this, there are three words that stand out. He says this. He says, then I will teach, I will sing, and I will declare. So that's our job. That's our MO. God, he can take care of the cleansing. He can take care of the washing. He can take care of the forgiving. He can take care of the renewing. He can take care of the creating. And we're going to teach, and we're going to sing, and we're going to declare. He's going to take care of the heavy lifting and in response to his greatness and in response to his mercy and grace, we are going to let other people who don't know him know that they can know him so that he'll take care of their mess too, so that he'll start that cycle all over again for somebody else. But it it comes with us saying, hey, I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. I'm going to sing your praises. If you, by the way, open my lips. And I'm going to declare your goodness. I opened up tonight saying that maybe like never before in recent history, people are ready for a revolution. They're ready for change. They are hungry for it. I personally think that the the ground in our state, in our country, is ripe for revival. Listen, the world is grasping for answers that you already have. What a shame if we keep that to ourselves. Billy Graham, and it kind of opened with a Billy Graham quote, we'll close with one. He said this, he says that the revival we long for must begin in our churches. Our churches are going to have to repent of their sins, their worldliness, strife, pride, bickering, malice, backbiting, and intolerance of each other. Pharisees on one side and Sadducees on the other. So I've just got a few questions to run past you real quick. What if we, as Christians, decided to make our chief priority loving God and preaching the gospel? What if we decided that our political affiliation needed to come second to our Christianity? What would it look like if we were more disgusted with our sin than the sin of others? What if we decided to ask for forgiveness more than we pointed out others' faults? What if our social media demonstrated the love of God instead of the wrath of man? I love this correlation in scripture. There's one passage that says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, but it's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Those are two different passages, but if you put them together, it makes quite a bit of sense. In verse 16 and 17, We already read it, but I want to just look at it one more time. He says, You do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Look, God's not after you pretending to look like a good Christian. God's after a person that recognizes, no, I'm still sinful, and I still desperately need him. That without him, I am nothing, and I need to abide in him. God's not after empty demonstrations. He wants us to be broken over our sin and turn to him. I love that David closes this psalm out with a prayer for the prosperity of his city. I think it's super special and super great for our times that he closes this this prayer of personal repentance out with a prayer for the prosperity of his city. Check this out. Verse 18, he says, Do good in your pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Those are like structural, those are like policy-making things there. It's like, no, we need to build this place up. God, we want you to do good on this city. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with the burnt offering and the whole burnt offering. See, this is the natural progression when we are in a right relationship with God, is to see others doing well. And when we rejoice to see somebody that we disagree with get put in their place, is that evidence that maybe something's not aligned within us, right, with God? When we rejoice to see the folly of people we disagree with, that's maybe evidence that we're not thinking and looking at them and loving them the way that God loves them because in his perspective... We're all equally sinners. We're on level playing field at the the foot of the cross. We have two minutes, and so I want to end with just two quick takeaways. Two quick takeaways. I always love when one, one of the pastors says, this is how much time we have left, and then everyone's heads go, they have clocks? We do. It keeps us on time. So, first takeaway, you need a Nathan. You need a Nathan, somebody in your life that has permission to speak into your life. Somebody in your life that can call you out and then call you up on things. See, nothing stagnates your growth more than arrogance. Nothing keeps you from your calling more than thinking you've already got it all together. We need people that we give that permission. Maybe we even ask them, hey, what's it like to be on the other side of me? That is one of the scariest questions you can ask. But we need those people who will keep us on track and help us to see when we're off. And then in response, when we hear those things, you and I need to walk humbly. You and I need to walk humbly and consider and pray about the things that they've shared with us. The second thing is kind of a repeat of what we already talked about in the revival section, but I just like this illustration so much, is go all in. I used to think that this quote was attributed to Warren Buffett. He's a famous investor. He's like a super rich man. He eats at McDonald's every morning and doesn't spend more than like $5 on his breakfast, which is crazy because he's a billionaire. But regardless, I used to always think he said, Buy stocks when there is blood in the streets, even if it's your own. But it's actually attributed, due to study in recent findings today, it's attributed to somebody else named Baron Rothschild. He's, from an 18th, he's an 18th century investor, and he says, the best time for you to put your money in the stock market is when chaos is happening in the world, when there's blood in the streets, even if it's your own. And so I just kind of want to twist that, and I think that the same is true of evangelism. Is it the best time to share the gospel is when there's blood in the streets, even if it's your own? Because people are more willing to hear now than maybe they've ever been before. So let's invest in eternity by bringing people to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is life-changing. We thank you that you are a life-changing God who has graciously and mercifully loved us, forgiven us our sins, and set us free from those sins. So God, we ask 
And right now, we want to take this really seriously. We want to bow, bow our hearts before you right now. And in silence, we want to prepare to ask that you would bring a revival. God, we want to ask that, that, that you would give us a zero-tolerance policy for sin in our lives. Help us when we do sin to be quick to repent. We know that you forgive us that sin. But God, we just want to confess that we've been guilty. We've been guilty of judging others. We've been guilty of looking beyond people that we're not comfortable talking with. We've been guilty of so many things and each of us of something different. But we recognize that those are sin and we want to turn to you from those sins. Help us to do that, Father. We love you. Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.